A quick warning before we begin. Today's episode contains a discussion of addiction and suicidal ideations, so please take care in listening. Last thing, um, just briefly, it's 4.47, so... Um, the drug that she was taking, you mentioned it. This is one of the first conversations I had with my producer, Austin. I'm about to tell him about one of the most pivotal moments in my life with my mom. I was 19, and she was in a really bad way. The most down the rabbit hole of drinking, I thought it was just drinking at that point. It was very, very, very dark. My whole upbringing, my mom would have these gnarly outbursts, but I'd always thought she just couldn't handle alcohol. She would have one glass of wine and fly off the handle. So one day my mom, for the first time in many years, left town. And I was there with this friend of mine. Uh, We decided to clean. And we were cleaning, and I lifted up her mattress of all cliche things. And there was a pill bottle under her mattress. I remember time kind of slowing down and being like aware, just kind of kinetically aware that I had stumbled upon something that was going to change the course of my life. And it said it was a prescription for a drug called desoxin. And I went and I searched, what is desoxin? And it basically said that it was a, a amphetamine. And it said uh, should never be mixed with alcohol because it produces psychotic behavior. And I was like, oh, cool, okay, you know, she's on speed. That's what this has been. And it's really hard to explain the sensation of it's it's like the butterfly emerging from the cocoon those moments in your life when you're forced out of childhood into adulthood all of a sudden i had grown up thinking that my mom was crazy and there's a loneliness that's inherent to that an isolation and terror and pain And in that moment, I realized it's not because she's fucking crazy. It's because she's been on this drug. And it shifted everything. My dad told me that desoxin had been Billy's drug. So I then started digging into Billy, trying to understand the house of grief that I was born into. Today on the show, my life with my mom, how it fell apart and came back together again. From Crimetown, I'm Io Tillett-Wright, and this is The Ballad of Billy Ball. somebody who you thought was your life partner, your protector, your like soulmate is viciously murdered 
your grief is of a different nature. It's raging grief. It's like slaughter everybody grief. I grew up entirely at the mercy of somebody else's moods, who was simultaneously my greatest protector and my greatest antagonist. I'm a little worried that we're going into family. Uh, should I not worry about this? Because it's, 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 it's your show, but I mean, this is you know? very difficult, very complex stuff. Chapter 10, Something Bigger Than Me. Why don't we just start? Tell me who you are. So my name is Cora, and we grew up together. I mean, we really grew up together. Cora's five years older than I am. Her dad and my dad were best friends, so we spent a lot of time together as kids. You were so um, spunky and scrappy and fiercely intelligent, but you were also, like, physically small and, and, and wispy and beautiful and, and delicate. You know, you were immediately my sibling. Yeah, it was really special. I mean, we spent a lot of time together listening to music and bullshitting all day long and eating snacks because we were always hungry and <laughs> walking around in the summer and getting ices and just being around the city, you know? It was not a place for children. I mean, it was an adult world. There were parties all the time. There were shooting galleries where people would go, cop drugs, shoot up. I have a memory of being six years old and walking to your father's house with my dad and on the way stopping in a building because, you know, he just had to make a quick stop. You know, there was a lot of poverty and there was a lot of drugs. So I kind of inherently had these feelings of in wanting to just protect you a lot because I sensed that there was danger. And I remember, you know, sleeping over at your house, for example, and, you know, Rebecca, your mom, had a boyfriend, Bernardo, for a long time. You know, and it was a small apartment. And I remember, you know, I remember them having sex in the middle of the night. It's not that, you know, sex is so indecent or whatever, but there was something like really primal going on and there was no privacy. And it just was not okay. I kind of just like held you. We were like lying in the bed and I just pretended I was sleeping and you kind of woke up for a second and looked at me and I just was like, it's okay, and I just kind of held you. I didn't feel like you were in a safe environment. And I never questioned that you were loved. Your parents love you e extremely. But I felt that your mom was really going through some shit on a soul level. That something had happened that had shifted her consciousness. Did you ever hear anything about Billy? I don't remember hearing about Billy. It's okay if not. I don't remember. She's also know. very cagey. I don't know. What was your understanding then of what was going on with her? She's just, your mom is wild. You know, your mom is wild. 
And and I felt like the poverty did not help. You know, being super broke all the time and and taking care of a kid, it's it's traumatic. You know, but there was a, there was always a sense of Io can totally take care of Io. You were scheming and like hustling always. You were like figuring out the way to get what you needed or wanted that your parents couldn't provide. You know, most kids get, go home and play or do homework or whatever, and I'd be like, okay, how do I get quarters? I'm showing Austin my go-to hustle spot in front of a McDonald's on Broadway. And this McDonald's right here was like my like North Star. If I could get enough money to get a Happy Meal, I was like, it was a good day. How would you get money? I made like ghosts out of tissues and sold them and... You made what out of tissues? Ghosts, like Halloween ghosts. Like you ball up a tissue and then you take another tissue and you put it over the top and then you put like a rubber band for the neck and then you draw a little face on it. And I would walk around and sell those. I was a cute little kid being like, you know, give me a dollar. People would be like, damn, a dollar? I'd be like, two dollars. I'd be like, damn. People would buy my like weird dumb shit. I look at the world as like a Rubik's cube where I'm like, all right, so I'm nine can't get a job, I've got 75 cents, I need to make it to tomorrow and I need to eat. Okay, so this piece goes there and that piece goes there and I know I can call this person for that and maybe I can eat the scraps over there. It's just like a, a riddle, you know? On the one hand, shit was really rough and on the other hand, I got this sense that like anything that I came up with was valid. Your parents and my parents as well, you know, never questioned our creativity, our intelligence, our self-sufficiency. You would come to school in army fatigues, and you were so adamantly and clearly very, very sure that you were a boy. You were a boy. You presented as a boy. There was no distinguishing feature that would mark you or gender you as a girl. You were very clear in your communication that I am a boy, period, full stop, and don't fucking ask me. And your dad in particular was just like, yeah, that's Io. You know, Io's Io. You declared it to me. It wasn't like I had to, you just declared it to me. You said I'm a boy. I told this to my dad when I was really little. You know, we were just walking through Central Park and you went to join some kids to play baseball and they said you couldn't play because you were a girl. And you marched up to me and said, from now on, Dad, I'm a boy. I'm your son. You will refer to me as he. And that's it. Do you understand? And I just accepted it. So I went home and I said, hey, Rebecca, uh, Io, says, uh, Io says she's a boy. And Rebecca's like, great, fine. She gave things that were totally above and beyond, like accepting me for who I was. Right. She fostered my imagination and she, like, read to me a ton and like there was always books and music and always 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 music and dance and culture and like fostering my imagination around this time my dad left for europe he says to try to get clean leaving me alone with my mom i think the thing is my mom didn't realize that she was an unsafe place for me she applied the same like 
dieting standards to me that she applied to herself. And she applied the same professional expectations of me as an eight-year-old as she did of herself as a 38-year-old, you know? But thinking back when she was with Billy, it seems like they lived that way too, you know? Yeah. Like that was accepted back then and as the world changed around her. She stayed the same. Right. There was definitely like a disconnect for her about like what a child needs. So we're down here, this is like, this is the city hall area. Very kind of epic architecture. I took Austin downtown to a place where I made a drastic move to change my life. And is this, the, wait, oh, this is it, is yep, it? Yep, this is the building. I'll never forget these columns, ever. So the New York County Family Court. It all started when I arrived at a new school for seventh grade. And I had huge dark bag circles under my eyes. And I was really, really pale and really, really skinny. And at that school, they had an actual gym that was gender segregated. And so the first gym class, they sent me down and were like, okay, go change in the locker rooms. And I was like, no, like I can't go in the girls, I can't go in the boys. Like, and I had this gender meltdown and they were just like, okay, like you need to talk to the school psychologist, like what's going on? She asked me what my home life was like. I was like, uh, because I was not supposed to talk to people of authority because my mom's love of her life had been killed by the police, so authority was bad. And I told her. I told her that our fridge had no food in it, which barely mattered because the power was off half the time anyway. I told her that I stole most of my meals, that I didn't go to doctors, I didn't sleep enough, and my mom and I would scream at each other like banshees. I told her that I was hungry and scared and that I hated my life. So one day this woman shows up at my school, middle of the day, and this woman is standing in the hall and she's like, are you I? I'm like, yeah. And she was like, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm your social worker and I'm here to take you away. And I was like, I need to call my mom. And she's like, you're not allowed to. And I was like, I don't give a fuck. Like, I'm calling my mom. Like, I will fight you physically. You don't want that scene. Just let me call my mother and tell her what's happening because I'm not doing that to her where I'm just going to vanish off the face of the earth. My mom was like, don't go with anybody. Don't go with anybody. I'm going to kill your guidance counselor. So I was like, it wasn't her. It was me. And I'm okay. And I'm going to be in touch with you when I can. I got to go. So I left, got my coat, went and got outside, went outside and got in a van with this woman. And they drove us right down here, the New York City Family Court building. And they took me upstairs and we went into an office and they basically were like, all right, well, here it is. Like, this is the moment. You now get to decide what you want to do with your future. And I was like, holy shit, give me a minute. I need to think about it. And I went in this room and they got me some French fries and then my mom showed up and started screaming in the next room about how I was a liar. I had told them that I hadn't really been to the dentist and she was like, I go to the dentist all the time. And she's calling me she, and I heard it through the wall. And I was like, nah, fuck this. Like my mom is calling me a liar. I'm not going home. I told them I wanted to live with my dad in Germany. I just got a call from New York that um, you were 
in the custody of the city and that you had um, brought about your removal from the house. And I got the next plane to New York and then began this long battle of uh, me trying to win custody. And I made the mistake in the first interview with your attorneys, because the city assigned you attorneys, of being a little bit protective of Rebecca because they were trying to characterize her as a kind of monster. And I was saying, no, 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 Rebecca's not a monster. You don't understand. And I was just saying, Rebecca, can you just stop? Back off. Io wants to live with me. Let Io live with me. Stop fighting this. And then we don't have to go through this whole court thing. And Io can just, you know, it's time to move on. Okay, Rebecca, you've come to the end of your rope on this thing, you know? My lawyer said to me, if you speak to her again, I'm no longer your lawyer. She is the opponent. We have to win. Don't be a pussy. Like, that's how they talk. The custody battle lasted three months. The courtroom wasn't a place where my mom shined. It was very sad for me to see Rebecca fuck it up um, and come in with a black eye come in with a lawyer who was half an hour late and couldn't get his tie straight and and then say stupid things like she has a vast knowledge of the human body and that's why you didn't go to see the dentist. When I watched her s- say these things and the judge kept looking up at me like we were looking at each other silently going like, oh boy, you know. Um, it was very painful, actually. Rebecca defeated herself. Do you remember the phone call when you called me to tell me? don't recall anything except we won, and you were delighted. I don't remember. I think your first words were, can we go? My first question was, is my mom okay? Ah, right, that's true. Yeah, of course. You were very defensive of your mom. From the very beginning, you were worried about her condition. You made the move to defend yourself, but you were very worried about her. Of course you were. After it was over... During mandated welfare checks, I saw my mom for the first time since she lost the case. The first time we showed up, my mom showed up with a big black eye. The second time we showed up, she showed up with like a bag of ice over her other eye and it was bleeding. And she said that her boyfriend had like thrown a belt and it had accidentally skewered her eyeball and just all this bullshit, you know, because she had a fucked up monstrous boyfriend and I know that I've, like, destroyed her. And she's, like, bleeding from the eyes like some kind of biblical matriarch. And I was just like, I can't fucking handle this. I think I came outside and threw up or something. She had to go to the hospital. She almost lost her eye. It's fucked up. Fucked up things happen here. After the break, Germany. I lived in a beautiful, small university city in Germany called Freiburg, and um, you were plunged into a kind of uh, better-than-normal circumstance, like a wonderful circumstance to which you were completely unaccustomed. I stepped off the plane in Germany, and it was like the Twilight Zone. People got mad when you jaywalked, and the air was crystal clear. Everybody thought I knew Jay-Z because I was from New York, and everybody was nice to each other. And I had a wonderful 
kind of 19th century apartment with many rooms and bedrooms and dining rooms and balconies. My dad lived with his girlfriend in a big apartment. I learned how to use a fork and knife. I had a computer and a full refrigerator, both powered by electricity. But I wasn't an easy kid. You actually just wanted me to be your dad and leave any other circumstance. And that was your declaration to me, you know? I didn't escape that fucking jail for you to have a girlfriend and a career and a life in the theater. I'm here now. Let's go. I was impossible. I had never had any dishes to wash, and I resented having to take out the trash. I hated having to share my dad, and I was coming to grips with something huge that I couldn't identify yet. When you hit puberty, you just announced, made another announcement. You just kind of came to me and said, I'm gonna be a girl now. I had never tried to be a girl before, and being in a safe environment made me long for acceptance and friends, so I thought I'd try it. I grew my hair out and got tighter jeans. But I had a real problem with authority. I got kicked out of two German schools and then a boarding school in England. You were a nightmare. You were determined to, like, burn the world down. I mean, when you went away to boarding school in Europe, you went to this progressive... This is my friend Cora again. I was afraid that you were going to live in Europe for the rest of your life and I wasn't going to see you. Um, but you like I didn't live in Europe for the rest of my life. When I was 16, I got kicked out of that boarding school and my dad's heroin addiction had escalated. So I had nowhere else to go but the place that I had fought so hard to escape. That New York City apartment with my mom. But I just remember there being a very sharp disconnect between the years that you were with Seth and the years that you were living with your mom. Um, And I remember one night, this is so anecdotal, and again, I wasn't there, so it's like third-person bullshit, but your mom was in a state. And all I remember really from the story was that the ambulance was called and... I think she was having, like, a psychotic episode, basically. There was a lot of concern. Maybe you can fill me in. Sure. It was the night before I was taking my final exams to graduate high school. So I was 17. Uh, It was also the night before my mom's birthday. She came home really, really, really drunk and really upset that I hadn't taken her out for her birthday that hadn't happened yet. She was obliterated and was saying that I was a horrible child because I hadn't done anything for her birthday. And I went in and I was like, Mom, your birthday's tomorrow. I'm going to take you out to dinner. And she was so upset and so convinced that I was a horrible spawn that she was started talking about getting on the six train and riding it to the end of the line and getting out and walking. I was scared my mom was gonna hurt herself. I didn't know what to do, so I called the cops. Then they showed up with an ambulance and I was in my pajama pants and had no shoes on and had nothing in my pockets but my cell phone and my keys and they knocked on the door and I just like freaked out because I was so I was like I can't and I like I went downstairs to the second floor and stayed at the other end of the hall while they went in and effectively arrested her. 
And when they passed by me to take her into the ambulance, she looked at me with this just betrayal and terror and fear and was just like burning her eyes through me of like, how could you invite the police into our home? And I went to the officer and I was like, can I please just get in the ambulance with her for a second and explain to her that this is for her safety? And he was like, sure. So I jumped in the ambulance and sat down and was like, Mom, this happened because I don't want you to hurt yourself. And of course, she just spewed violence at me and we immediately started fighting. And the fucking EMT sitting across from us goes, are you inebriated? And I was like, what? And she was like, your pupils are dilated. Are you intoxicated? And I was like, my pupils are fucking dilated because it's four in the morning and I am terrified and my mother is strapped into an ambulance right now. And she was like, that's it, you're intoxicated too, you're coming with us. Blam, straps me in to the seat. I was in disbelief as they drove us to the hospital. And then they locked us in separate rooms. Oh my God, I, oof. But then, I made my escape. I basically convinced this like young guard dude to like let me use the bathroom down the hall. And as I was going to the bathroom, I saw an exit sign down a hallway and I just fucking ran. And I took off in my socks and like the sun was starting to come up and I ran all the way back to the apartment. And I fell asleep. Then she came home. And she threw everything in the house at my door and tried to beat it down with my own baseball bat, tried to bust it down with her body. I don't know how that piece of shit Section 8 housing door held up, but it did. And eventually she passed out. I woke up that morning, you know, whatever, an hour of tormented non-sleep later, and went to high school and somehow passed my exams. <laughs> Goddamn. It's a miracle. Uh, that was a bad one. This went on for years. We fought brutally all the time. Eventually, I found that bottle of desoxin under her mattress. I was furious. I couldn't believe everything she'd put me through because she'd been high. I wanted nothing to do with her. And when I was 22, I moved out for good. And then I met Katie. Hi. Hi. I'm recording Hi. you. Oh, my. <laughs> How did we meet, Katie? <laughs> well, I was really embodying my grungy, coffee girl, hairy, armpitted, lesbian self. And um, one of our mutual friends introduced us. And then you swooped up real stylish, like in your 1982 diesel Mercedes. And we went to the Guggenheim because we're artsy New Yorkers and had our first date non-date, which was not a date, but was definitely a date. Um, <laughs> what happened at the Guggenheim? 
Well, they have individual bathroom stalls at the Guggenheim. <laughs> Shout out to the Guggenheim for their romantic design. And I think you said, like, I have to go to the bathroom. And um, I said, I'm coming with you. <laughs> and I walked into the bathroom with you. And I really hope you use this for your podcast because this is really funny. <laughs> and I and I said, I wish that I could straddle you right now. And you said, why can't you? And then I came over and straddled you and we basically hooked up for the first time in the Guggenheim bathroom with people like pounding on the wall. <laughs> and... Cool. And then you invited me over to your apartment in which you had just recently moved and had one box on the floor. And we had our like first romantic dinner um, on a cardboard box on the floor with no furniture. Katie and I were together for the next few years. And during that time, she got to know my mom. In terms of Rebecca, I mean, she's wild and she's... How do I want to say it? Not the most integrated, grounded person that you'll ever meet. When your mom was either immersed in being intoxicated and consumed by her own depth of pain, there was no room for you. Um, and that you were immersed in her pain um, involuntarily and without really comprehension of what was going on. What What is your understanding of where her pain came from? I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with Billy. Um whom she has always talked about a lot, this saga of losing the love of her life and Mm. uh, the unresolved story and history of that and living in the past and um, that being an open wound. Katie and I broke up, and I started doing some pretty self-destructive things of my own. I was a workaholic and drinking too much to try and manage the anxiety that was surfacing. I was insistent that I was not a victim and that everything was fine, but inside, I was a disaster. When I was 27, I went to California for work, and the bottom fell out. You called me and were like, I need your help. I need you to come here right away. It was urgent. Everything felt very urgent. Um, And I got on a plane as quick as I could. What did you find when you got there? You were really a shell of yourself. Um, You had a feeling of being really hollow. Um, And your face, like, barely had any color in it. And you were crying kind of consistently, but frantically and randomly. You couldn't sleep. You would wake up in terror literal terror like shaking and and yelling and and feeling like you were gonna die I mean it was really scary do you think I thought that I was going crazy yes I mean definitely you expressed that you thought you were going crazy I was having a mental breakdown I started calling Katie and my dad constantly to not be alone You were um, having panic attacks and you were having um, great disturbances of the spirit. It was like, oh, a black cloud is moving over my head from behind me and everything is doomed and I have to die. The pain and stress were building 
and I didn't know where they were coming from. Something bigger than me was overtaking my mind, and I was terrified. And I remember there was a particular day when I went to the beach, and it was a big, blazing, beautiful blue day, and I sat on the beach wrapped in a towel, and everything was black. And it disturbed me so much. I got into my car, and I was sobbing so hard I could almost not drive. It was all coming to an unbearable head, and I called my dad at the end of my rope. I got back to my friend's house who I was staying at, and I called you saying, I want to get off this planet, holding a friend of mine's gun in my hand. I didn't know that. And you said to me, if you kill yourself, you will take me with you. Oh, I probably did, yeah. That's probably true. It is. (laughs) Yeah, it would be unacceptable. (laughs) So I didn't. And at that point, I was faced with, okay, if it's not blue pill, then what does red pill look like? And for me, it was to embark on a quest for understanding. I decided to live, but to change everything. If I was going to make it, I was going to have to rip the plant out of the ground and repot it in entirely new soil. I started exercising, going to a 12-step program for the loved ones of addicts. I stopped drinking and went to therapy twice a week. And I started writing a book about my childhood. You discovered agency. You were digging, you were looking, you were managing the information, you were discovering. It wasn't happening to you. You were actually taking charge of experience. So that's a very important thing to do. Eventually, I was diagnosed with PTSD, which explained the mental breakdown. And I realized that I had been denying something I knew clearly when I was a kid. I'm transgender. I'm a man in a female body, which was a massive thing to unravel of its own. It took me nine months to get back on my feet, but when I did, I threw myself headlong into my new life. Tonight we hear from artist Io Tillett-Wright, whose photography projects have sparked a dialogue. Io is an artist, activist, writer of the new memoir, Darling Days. Io Tillett-Wright, new book out, Darling Days. I moved to California full-time and set up shop in the desert. My mom and I started to connect again. Our relationship works a lot better 3,000 miles apart. Hey, Io, listen, um, are you coming back across the country? Could you bring me a tumbleweed? A growing tumbleweed? Call me back. Bye. So understanding that my mom wasn't just choosing to be an asshole was a really big thing. And that then led me to wondering about what caused all of the pain that she was trying to medicate away. How did she get there? How did she get to the point where like, she could make choices that would imperil her kid and not know? Billy. All right. 
Is this thing recording? Yep. It's February 6th, 2016. And we are sitting in Williamsburg. And for the first time, we're having a sit-down interview session for what will become the ballad of Billy Balls and his baby girl. Here's my mama. Yeah. Billy knew it. At Harvard School of Medicine. If I don't move past my anger and she doesn't move past her grief, we're not going to ever be able to have a functional relationship with each other. And I'm trying to change it because I don't want to be angry at her forever. I love you so much, Mom. I love you so much, my bud. My golden orange bud. All the things that Billy didn't want to show her, she doesn't want to see. I need to know that stuff. She just needs to know where he is. I want to find Billy's body so that she can say goodbye to him and maybe have a happier life. We're gonna find him. We're gonna find him, okay? Okay. And you know what? I did find him. That's in two weeks. If you or someone you know is having suicidal ideations, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. This lifeline provides free and confidential support 24-7. If you're queer and need support, you can call The Trevor Project, also 24-7, at 1-866-488-7386. I called them during my darkest moments, and they saved my life. Use it. Primetown is Zach Stewart-Pontier and Mark Smerling. The Ballad of Billy Balls is hosted by me, Io Tillett-Wright, and made in partnership with Cadence 13. You can find me on the internet. I'm Io Loves You on Everything. And if you want to know more about my story, pick up my memoir, Darling Days. We also want to hear from you. We have a voicemail set up, and I love it when you call. Here's Casey from Dallas. I had kids young. I have two kids. Being a mom is such a hard job, and I screwed up so many times. I wish my kids could listen to this and have the same kind of compassion and understanding that you have for your mom and your dad, because it's the hardest job to love someone so much and have so much power over the way their life turns out while just being a human being and trying to figure life out for yourself. If there's something on your mind, thoughts, feelings, complaints, call us and leave us a voicemail at 570-392-9660. Especially if today brought stuff up for you, just call us and tell us about it. You can also get into our discussion forum on our website, theballadofbillyballs.com. This show is produced by me, Kevin Shepard, and Ryan Swiker. Our senior producer is Austin Mitchell. Editing by Zach Stewart-Pontier and Mark Smerling. Fact-checking by Jennifer Blackman. 
This episode was mixed by Kenny Kusiak. Music and sound design by Kenny Kusiak. Our title track is Dark Allies by Light Asylum. Archival research by Brennan Reese. Thanks to Daniela Araya, Rachel Lee Wright, Emily Wiedemann, Green Card Pictures, Alessandro Santoro, Bill Clegg, Ben Davis, Oren Rosenbaum, and the team at Cadence 13. Special thanks to Safi Martinez, Cora Fisher, Andrea Franks, Sarah Driver, Seth Tillett, Katie Atherton, Nicole Rauscher, Linnea Tillett, Leslie Wright, Dee Dee Tillett, Renetta Robinson, and Joan Stockhammer. And Amber and Johnny for taking me in when I needed it the most. And of course, my mom, without whom none of this would be possible. <laughs>